Welcome to Indie Game Business, where you'll learn to navigate the industry with ease. This show is produced by the Powell Group, the leading business consulting firm in the gaming industry. Visit us online at IndieGame.Business to learn about our online digital events. We have some amazing sessions with people in the gaming industry, and you can participate for free and purchase inexpensive passes to our industry-leading business-to-business system. Now, here we go, Indie Game Business. everybody happy friday and uh, my name is indy the gentleman next to me is mr jay powell from powell group consulting and we want to welcome you to another exciting episode of indie game business today we are talking about game pitches and we have our special guest chris kellner hello there hey, chris and so welcome to Indie game business. It was good seeing you again in person back in San Francisco. Yep. So, or did you survive San Francisco without COVID, or did did you catch it? I dodged it, but I know a lot of people didn't. Yeah, miraculously, I I got away without actually catching it. Um, so some some people from from my company got it. And I, I still, I, I had lunch with them like the day before they knew. So I don't know how I did it, but so far. I, I, I'm kind of of the same boat. It's like, I don't know. We, we usually don't go to normal conferences that aren't in a pandemic and not come home sick. And yeah. this one, for, for what is it? So you've been in the industry for a long time. But let's go in the in the wayback machine and tell us how you originally got into the industry and walk us through your career up to this point. Okay, okay, let's do it. Um, so I, I'm I'm probably one of the one of the many people who are still working in the games industry who never actually intended or planned to work in the games industry. So I studied um, history and political sciences and archaeology. And I, I was set to become a journalist. So I, I, I'm a trained journalist by my um, uh, by, by what I learned, actually. So, but uh, at the time when there were no jobs in journalism after the traineeship, that was in 2003, when I ended the traineeship, um, I, I had to kind of reinvent myself and think about like what else could I do now that I'm a trained journalist. And so I applied to PR. Um, positions. And uh, I applied to a PR position in Hamburg in Germany at a, at a German games publisher called DTP Entertainment. Um, they were located in Hamburg. They were small at the time, like 20 people. And um, I didn't know anything about the games industry. I was an avid gamer. Obviously, I have been all my life. But uh, yeah, so I applied there and I applied at a bunch of other companies because I was very desperate to, to find a job and I got the job. So I became PR manager in the games industry. And in the next two years, then uh, that was in 2003, 
Um, so I was, yeah, I was, I was doing PR for the games that we, we published and a lot of that, those games we published in Germany, only in Germany, Austria and Switzerland. And, uh, I learned a lot about how to actually present games, what is important when you pitch games, um, when you pitch games to, to games, journalists, editors of games, magazines, or, um, online sites and. And also to how to work with the games community out there, you know, because th those those were the times when Facebook was not around, but we had game forums actually for each individual game, and then also for all of our games, and then there were independent forums, and I was on all of them, and basically, basically <laughs> trying to to you know get the mood right for the games we had coming up and stuff like that. So I did that for about two and a half years, and um, and there were a couple of successes, so we kind of. We, what we did is we, we focused on uh, the rebirth of the point and click adventure game because at the, at the end of the 90s and the early 2000s, the adventure game was kind of said to be dead. And, uh, but we picked some up and, and we published them quite successfully. So, so kind of we, we claimed that we kind of revived it, you know, and, uh, and that founded the, the success of DTP as a games publisher. And two years later, I got the chance to actually change into the business side of things um, at this publisher at DTP Entertainment. They were looking for somebody to do international sales and business development uh, because um, they were producing more and more games by themselves, not just picking them up for distributing them, but also producing them. And they established a producing uh, department and they, they needed somebody to sell these games to other distributors all over the world. And uh, I raised my hand and said, like, okay, I'm going to do that. I didn't have any clue about it, um, what that would actually mean. And I think I, I really sucked at, at the first, in the first years of doing it, but it taught me everything about, you know, like, um, how to do publishing and licensing agreements, distribution agreements, shipping finished goods from one country to the other and all of that stuff. And then I, for some time also, I did all the sourcing actually. So I, I looked at new games. I, I met with developers. I set up the development contracts. I did all the PLs, you know, the, the the calculations and everything. Presented them in the green light um, uh, meeting and stuff like that. And I was there when when actually we drafted some ideas. We 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 had ideas for new games internally at the publisher, and then reached out to developers and found the right developers to develop them for us, which was kind of a new concept to us. Um, and now that I think about it, it's like the most banal thing, you know, like a work for hire scenario, but for us, it was kind of, kind of completely new. And uh, back in the day, we didn't find actually enough content to, from, from which was offered to us. So, so that was, were exciting times. And then the financial crisis came and then uh, the company invested a hell lot of money into Nintendo DS games and that bubble built up and then burst in 2009, I think. And um, so in 2010, I found like, okay, I, I can't do this anymore. You know, I, I need to do something else because I, I cannot get the numbers out of the territories where I was supposed to sell uh, goods to and, and stuff like that, stuff like that. So I thought like, okay, let's, let's change something. And I joined a company located in, in Munich, um, remote control productions. And, um, and there I actually became a kind of a business development agent for developers. So I kind of switched sides and all of a sudden I found myself in the position that where I had to pitch game projects, um, to publishers. 
so that was something new to me and and um i did that for 10 years actually from 2010 to 2020 um, basically the end of 2020 beginning of two, uh, 2021 um, so i basically worked for a lot of development teams i consulted a lot of development teams in which games they should actually come up with how they should pitch them how to, how did they should do the pitches the, the presentations the uh, prototypes and everything and i learned a lot i mean the first years i think i made a lot of mistakes but i learned by that a lot about how to pitch games to publishers and over the years we got quite some some deals landed um, we sold some original projects and we sold a lot of work for hire uh, projects also where we sold the services of our teams obviously to, to clients and yeah and then in um in i think in late 2020 I thought like after 10 years, I needed, I needed another change. <laughs> and I thought like it would be very nice to, to get back on the publishing side of things and work for a publisher again. And I reached out to one of my clients, um, the guys that I was selling to actually. And I, I asked them like, uh, I don't, I asked them if they had anybody who's, who's doing business development for them because they, they kind of didn't. And I thought like they should, they should actually have someone. And I offered myself and they said, like, okay, that's a good idea. Let's do it. You know? And so since the beginning of 2021, a little bit more than a year, I'm now head of business development at Astragon Entertainment, um, a German games publisher who has been around for quite some time, more than 20 years, longer than I've been in the games industry even. And, um, and we are specialized in simulation games. And by simulation games, I mean, vehicle simulation games like bus simulator, construction simulator, and then police simulator, firefighting simulator, stuff like that. And I'm doing a hell of things for them other than, I mean, obviously I'm sourcing games from developers for them. I'm um, meeting developers and evaluate developers whether they might become work for hire studios for us. But I'm also like connecting dots when it comes to international sales and platforms and stuff like that. And all of that stuff so it's quite diverse actually what i'm doing right now and uh, it's exciting i mean and that's what it takes i don't think i don't think there's many people that can stay in this industry for for 20 years like we have and not mix it up a little bit and and say because you can't you can't it's it just gets to the point where you're it's exhausting and you have to have that change just mm -hmm honestly why I love what I do because when you consult you're doing all kinds of stuff for all kinds of different people and yeah no two days are, are ever the same so it's interesting that you you've been on the journalism side and you've been on the developer publisher side mm -hmm. what would you say the main differences are between how you pitch a game to a journalist and how you pitch a game to a publisher um, I think the the answer to that question lies within um, the intention that you actually have when you pitch a game to like like a games editor or to a publisher. Um, obviously, a games editor is is much is much more akin to the end consumer, or he sees the games with the eyes of the end consumer, the player. You know, so basically. Um, you pitch games to games editors when they are all already in final stages of the development. 
And basically, you don't have to explain a lot like, okay, so this is going to change in the next year or something like that. So that's that's technically like the biggest difference. But then it comes also that the, um, the intention is, is different. Um, so you pitch much more like you would pitch to any player out there. Like, why is it fun to play that game? Or, um, or look how beautiful the game is. And obviously, these aspects also play a role when you pitch a game to a publisher. But when you pitch a game to a publisher, there's also many, many other aspects that are not you know, that interesting or that relevant to a games editor and a player of a game. Like, um, can we make money with that game? Am I a reliable games developer? Can I deliver on what I'm promising right now? Stuff like that. So all the economic you know, things, um, the economic side of things, and then obviously, can you pull it off technically and as a game designer, you know, can, can you even do it? Um, that, that's questions actually that you have to answer when you pitch to a publisher and that you can actually um, neglect when you pitch to a games editor or yeah, the public in the end. So and in some ways, I think you have to do both when you're going to a publisher, because like you said, I mean, you've got to understand that not only can you finish this, but you know what the, you know, consumers, you know, going to want. It's, it's like I always say about any kind of sales and, and pitching. It's, you know, it's my job if I'm pitching to you to make your job easier when you have to go into a green light meeting and say, you know, this is why we're, this is why this is a good fit for us. You know, this is why this is going to be successful, that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, so the, all right. So one, we have a bit of a misnomer in the, in the name. So we'll, we'll call it clickbait. One, there are times when it's too early to start pitching your game. Oh, absolutely, so, yes. <laughs> I would say it's never too early to start pitching your game unless you're not prepared. Then it's definitely too early. <laughs> you know? So preparation is everything, basically. So what would you say that the ideal time to start pitching your, your game is? And what do you need to have ready when you start doing that? Um, I, I, I would say the ideal ideal time to pitch your game is when you have a playable and what a playable is is actually a very long thing that we could talk about you know because a lot of people have a lot of misconceptions about what a playable with which you pitch to a publisher uh, could look like or should look like so the playable is the one thing that all publishers will always ask you about when you pitch something to them they will always basically revert to asking you for the playable. So it's the one most important thing. And ideally, you basically start pitching when you have it already, so that you can basically kind of cast the iron when it's still hot, you know, and, and, um, you know, alongside with the playable, you need to have everything else in place. Um, like, uh, you need to have a kind of high level game design document, you need to have a staffing plan, you need to have your budget and your timings and everything in place. Um, you should have um, at least a very nice presentation where all the details of the game are in there. So if anybody wants to read that and not just play the playable, which they always do, I, I mean, they, they first they play the playable and then they start actually looking at anything that, that you've written about it. So um, 
so you need to have that ideally you also have like a a video after playable which summarizes the, the most exciting things um because a lot of people don't want to kind of fire up you know um the playable when they present it internally they only want to you know show a video of it which is completely sufficient for most screen lighting meetings and uh, and all of that stuff but i think the playable is i mean the, the one most important thing and if you have that and you have your planning for what, what the game is all about that you want to do and, and how much it will cost and how long it will take then i think you're pr pretty pretty uh, set up pretty well i mean obviously that that is that is the point where you really should you know go out and pitch it um you can go out earlier if you don't have the playable to to basically gauge the water temperature so that, that can you can do um but not overdo it in my opinion because if you overdo it um it might become a dead horse and then people might be annoyed with you showing them a paper pitch again and again and again and without ever coming up with something that is actually moving on the screen you know so all right real quick make sure on discord that you've got me muted because it it looks like we're getting a bit of a, a i got you i got you muted um all right well that's that's weird okay. <laughs> all right so we talked about when you start and and all of that sort of stuff but one of the points that you mentioned you know when we were talking before all of this is that pitching doesn't necessarily end with a signing of a contract can you go into a little bit of depth on what that means and then we'll circle back to the um to the to the playable demo question as well okay i i, I didn't get the question because i was looking at the muting. oh oh, oh no, no, it's a, it's... <laughs> I, I got you muted there I, I, I think it's because uh you don't have headphones on and oh i'm sorry and so whenever we talk the mic picks it up in discord okay. ah yeah i see it now um all right so the question was you mentioned that pitching doesn't always end with signing a contract. Can you go into a little bit of detail on, on what that means? Yeah, I can, I can. So um, I think a, a lot of the effort that, that developers put into the, into the whole process and pitching obviously kind of ends with getting the contract signed. But um, I think what you need to consider is that after the contract is signed, the real work with your publishing partner only starts you know and and what a, what a lot of developers kind of in my experience kind of underestimate is how tr tricky the conversation and that the communication with the publisher from that moment on is so um so so from the moment that you you got the contract signed basically the business development people who had an, an interest in getting the contract signed, they are out of the whole thing. So they might not even be communicating with you at all. I mean, my job uh, as business development at Astrogon is done when I have the contract signed and then uh, um, our, our producers and marketing people take over. So what you need to do as a developer, you need to start finding a, a very good way to communicate with the producing and then with the marketing people, product management at the publisher so basically, uh, you, you, you're not completely covered and safe forever once you have the, the contract signed, but you need to kind of convince these people too that what you're about to deliver 
is is actually is actually good and is actually not going to be a nightmare for them to actually um, process and and get done internally because a lot of, of producers and, and product managers over time get really fed up and annoyed with developers who don't properly communicate with them and don't actually work with them closely together on the project until it's actually released. So that's the one thing of it. Then the other thing of it is obviously, so um, in the second, and that is completely independent from your current publishing partner, what, what, what developers underestimate is in the second that you get a deal signed, you have to be starting to pitch again for your next project. Or if you if you don't do it already, then you have to start at right this point. So you cannot actually then let a couple of months pass until you think about, oh, we should maybe pitch the next project. And I, I met a lot of developers who only started pitching the next project when their current project was already ending in development and and was shortly before before it's it's it, it was going to be released and the thing is you might be totally convinced of your project and, and might think like there's going to be buckets of, of of cash coming in um but maybe not you know and if you're kind of relying on that and you don't have a, a deal you don't have a deal in place a follow-up deal um for whatever with who, whomever you know you might be screwed and um, a lot of developers actually went down because of that. So they couldn't line up a, a follow-up deal to their current project fast enough. So they had a cash gap. You know, they, they were basically running out of runway and then they were going down. And I witnessed it a couple of times. And um, setting up a new deal always takes way longer than you think and the whole pitching process takes way longer than you think so you better should start very very early on with it and and basically when you when you are about to sign the deal you should already be thinking about the next project yeah i mean we see four months is the estimate that we usually use post pandemic where you know from the time that you start sending it out to a publisher to the time that a deal signed like on average and yeah if you don't if, if you don't think through that and prepare for that, then you are going to get, you know, screwed. Like you said, the other thing, you know, I would add to, especially once your transition goes from the business development person to marketing and production is as a developer, you always need to be asking, is there anything else that you need from me? Because otherwise, you know, things can get dropped, things can get missed. Maybe the publisher assumes you don't have something, but you actually do. Um, and then we've also seen a lot of instances in the past where the um, the communication is so poor that the publisher is actually like showing old video and old screenshots and even old feature sets to, you know, their journalists in the marketing side as well, because they don't know any better. You know, that's, that's what they yeah. have. And, and so, um, yeah, I mean, conversation absolutely and communication is is the key to all of this all right so i want to circle back to playable demos and you said that there's a lot of different versions of you know, <laughs> what needs to be in there and a lot of assumptions and so in an ideal case <laughs> what should that playable demo include or not include when you start pitching to publishers yeah um, absolutely that, that's that's a topic where I could basically talk for a day about it because um, I, 
I, um, I made, we made so many mistakes in that and, and uh, we learned it the hard way actually how to do prototypes. Um, so the first thing is that, you know, when we talk about prototypes, I think a lot of people in their minds, they have kind of this technical prototype, like, like the very first car that was ever made, like, and obviously that prototype just has to work somehow, you know? So that's kind of our conception or our common conception of a prototype. Um, but when it comes to games pitching, it's actually very, very, very different. And a lot of a lot of people out there will tell you like, yeah, yeah, you, you, it's totally fine. You can you can send me a very early version. You can show me a very early version. I can I can actually see the potential in it, where I can you know I, I know what it will look like you know in in the end and stuff like that. So people kind of claim that. And you might fall into the trap and then actually send them something which looks like crap and is very, very early. And then you get rejected. And then you think like, yeah, but I did a, a prototype. I did a play. I sent a play. But why am I I'm, I'm not getting my game signed? And the reason is because it's all wrong. You know, people just say that they, they have this kind of abstract thinking. And if something looks crap, they can still see through it and see the potential in it. Um, but they don't. You know, and the reason is is very simple. I mean, we as human beings, we're super rely relying on our eyesight as our main uh, sense. You know, and we basically evaluate and we judge things within milliseconds when we see anything. It, it doesn't matter what. You know, you kind of judge and evaluate things within milliseconds. I always use the the kind of old school bar example. You know, if, when you walk into a bar and you are up to something tonight you know then you basically scan the room and then you decide within milliseconds if there is a person in this room in this bar that you might be interested and um, and you do that kind of subconsciously and it is the same when you look at games i mean everybody everybody of you can can actually ask yourself and, and think like okay so how fast do i decide or subconsciously even whether i like a screenshot of a game or a video of a game when i see it, it it's really fast and you kind of can't help yourself, you know? So, and then basically to undo this, your first impression, to undo it um, is very hard for a lot of people. So that's the first thing um, that, you know, is tricky when you, when you start thinking about like your pitching playable. I would like to call it pitching playable because it's really not just a prototype. A prototype is totally fine if it's for internal reasons for internal stuff and you want to just check out if, if some game design idea that you have works well and, and stuff like that. So that's totally fine. But as soon as you pitch it to somebody, um, you have to think harder about it, what, what you're going to pitch, because otherwise you will, will, will fail. And so the ideal prototype, um, to, to make it short, is like, a, I, don't, I don't know, if, like a demo version, which in the olden days, was on that CD on a games magazine, and it was actually supposed, you know, to the, you know, to, to yeah, for the public to actually uh, um, gain gain interest in the game and then and then play it. And I, I vividly remember the the first time I did that, I bought a games magazine. I think it was in 1998 or 1997, and it had, or even earlier, it had a playable demo of Fallout 1 on it and I played that and I was completely flashed you know I was I was like oh wow I love this game I have to have it 
and it was a complete level. It looked exactly like the game then looked like in the end. And you could play it and enjoy it. And it had all the, the most important game mechanics in it. And it, it was polished, you know, there were sounds and everything. And, uh, and it, you know, it, it basically showed me what the main game would be like. And I mean, crazy enough, that example, that level wasn't even in the final game. So they made it just as a public demo. It's crazy if you think about it, what they did back then. Um, but that's kind of what your pitching prototype or pitching playable, well, that's a better word for it, should be like. Um, the reason for it is, as I said, um, we are all kind of human beings and we are guided by our subconscious, you know, um, evaluation of things. So even if somebody says like, okay, I can, I have the abstract thinking in place, most people don't. But then the thing is, even if this person is convinced and takes your gaming prototype, your playable to an internal meeting, you will have, it's, it's basically out of your control what happens there. So you will not be there to actually explain why this is not looking nice yet <laughs> or why this is not working nice yet. You know, you're not there. So you can't stand next to the people in the green light meeting and actually um, talk about that. So th this is just a reality. I mean, the ideal scenario is obviously that you visit the publisher and then you present the game to a whole round of people and everybody is excited about it. But most of the time they will ask you to send the playable and then you send it out. And then that secondary send it out, it's out of your control. And then it should basically be able to fight for itself. And therefore it has to have a certain polishing level and it has to include all of the stuff. And one more thing about the content. So a lot of people think, um, and, and let me tell you an example. So back in the day, we were pitching a free-to-play battle game, and, um, and we made a prototype for it because we were clever, and, and we thought, like, okay, we're going to do a prototype, a playable, and then we're going to sell it. But no, we didn't. Why? Because we only prototyped or, or basically showed the actual battle gameplay of that free-to-play battle game in the prototype, but none of the meta game, which is very, very important for a free-to-play game because that's where actually money is made in free-to-play games. And most people, or many people, just skip the actual battles and everything, you know, in, in, in games like that. Um, so um, the, the introduction of the auto-skip battle um, button was, was for me actually shocking, but okay, that's it, you know? So we kind of didn't do that. And obviously, so, so free-to-play mobile publishers came back to us and they said like, okay, so, but how does the metagame work? How does actually the progression, player progression work? How does the player motivation work? Um, how can we uh, avoid the churn and stuff like that, you know? So it really depends on what the essence of your game is. And that has to be in the playable. Because if it isn't, then it's going to fail. Your, 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 your little slice of the game might be beautiful and very important to the game. But if it's not you know, what makes the game in the end, uh, it, it will fail in, in the pitching. All right, so I want to get to you. I want to hit one quick question. And then we're going to circle back to, to our day gamer and, and Yana, because we've got like a feed of these coming in. So the other word that people like to use when they're talking about the, the demo or the prototype is the vertical slice. Mm -hmm. 
is it all the same, just different terminology or, you know, is a vertical slice different than what you're looking at as a, as a prototype or a demo? Mm, it, it, it's, it's pretty much, I mean, by the definition that I know about a vertical slice, it's pretty much that, but I would actually shy away from, from labeling stuff like that with, with technical terms like vertical slice, because a lot of people have different understandings of what that is and rather have a set of features, you know, for the pitching playable, specifically a pitching playable that is in, intended to, you know, sell the game and um, rather than just say, okay, it has to be like a vertical slice, you know, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I agree, because that of all the terms is the one that I think has a lot of different definitions, depending on on who you're talking to, and even more definitions based on, you know, the type of game that you're looking at, the genre of game, because, you know, a pitching, I mean, a vertical slice from a platformer is going to be very much different than a vertical slice from a strategy game and, and exactly. all, of, all of that sort of stuff. Um, all right, wait, hold on. I'm going to go up a little higher in the list, Dan. So from our day gamer on YouTube, would you suggest an early access demo with a disclaimer that it's a work in progress that may not represent the final game? Uh, disclaimers are always tricky, you know, because as, as I said, you're not always there to actually, um, you know, put the, uh, tell everybody about what the disclaimer, you know, to kind of tell it yourself. And uh, so the disclaimer is the one tricky thing because you might write all over it like this is early early stuff um but it's it still people are still evaluating you know in in the in, when they when they fire up a, a a playable and um and it's not fun and even if it says this is work in progress and this is early they will still develop a negative attitude about it and so the disclaimer is is not actually solving anything um so i would be very hesitant you you still can use it you, you can still like like make little like uh, pop-ups or stuff like that and say like okay this is work in progress and, and this is not final but we be very careful about it because people will still evaluate and, and judge you know Okay, what was the other question? Oh, um, we have multiple questions. Don't, don't worry, we're, we're, we're going to tear through them. So I'm going to go to to Yana also on YouTube. Would releasing a demo for a game that's already out in early access be beneficial? I think when the, when the game is already out in early access, then it's already accessible also for the, per, to the publisher that you're pitching to. So you don't have to do a demo of it and uh, specifically for the pitching reason, because the publisher, if, 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 if he or she is, is clever in any way, they will find your early access version anyway, and then basically compare it and, and, and stuff like that. So um, if you're already in early access, that's your pitching version. Yeah. So th this is a, a good question. Another one from Our Day Gamer. And this gets into a lot of basically how many internal resources do you have as an indie developer? Because it's all, I mean, I agree with you in an ideal world. Yeah. If we could go back to those PC gamer discs, which were awesome, by the way, um, mm -hmm. it would be a lot easier because you've got a much more polished thing. But the reality is back then, you know, you had to gold master a game 
two or three months before it was going to be released because it had to go to manufacturing everywhere. And you had, you had a little bit of, of cushion in there. Mm -hmm. Um, so he asked for an actual demo to pitch to publishers or to the public, you suggest a finished product maybe, but it's just the first hour or so of an actual game. And yes, in an ideal world, you have that. But then the question becomes, mm -hmm. if you already got your finished game, mm -hmm. where it, it did you start too late? It, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be finished. Um, that that's, that's actually not, not what I meant. It, it has to look like the finished game, but it has, it doesn't need to be finished. And one hour is actually way too much for a pitching playable. Um, so most of the, the games evaluators at publishers, uh, they will play the game. Maybe first of all, they will play it for maybe five minutes and then determine within the first five minutes, whether it's actually worth their time, or maybe they, it's, it's something to reject right away, you know? And, um, and then they might play on and then they might, might play like 10 minutes or 15 minutes, you know, stuff like that. So this is, this is pitching level, you know, obviously at a later stage when you are really in, in advanced conversation with the publisher. So, um, people might play it for a longer time, but at that stage, you already have overcome the first obstacle, you know, and, and that's kind of the first impression that your pitching playable needs to, needs to make. So I think the essential thing is to get the first, I would say, 15 to 30 minutes right. And even, even if it's just five minutes, those five minutes have to rock, you know? And if they rock, you over, overcame the first obstacle and then you're in, basically. And even if the rest is then just looking like working progress stuff, you know, um, you already made the good impression. And then the working progress stuff actually doesn't do any harm if it's the other way around it's more tricky actually to get into a green light meeting then, you know? So, um, I, I always go by the saying, if you can't make it, fake it, you know? So you don't have to, you know, develop final quality and everything, everything is in place. You basically made the whole game and then you start pitching. So you, you make a, a playable that is like 15 minutes of great fun shows all the essential stuff in the game, or maybe even just hints at some of the stuff. Um, if it's not vital to, for, for, the, for the game, if it's not a USP or one of the pillars, I'd rather talk about pillars than USPs actually, um, then it, it, hasn't, it, hasn't, it, don't, it doesn't have to be in the game already. Um, and, and those 15 minutes, they need to rock, you know, but it doesn't have to be an hour and it doesn't have to be a quasi finished game. Indie Game Business has one of the longest running digital event series in the gaming industry with hundreds of publishers, investors, developers, and tech companies to meet with. All the sessions are always free to watch forever, and you can get a free pass to receive all the slide decks from all the speakers. The tickets for meetings start just at $50. Go to IndieGame.Business and use the code IGBPODCAST to get 20% off your ticket.
All right, so I mean, there, a question out of the middle of that. What's the difference between a USP and a pillar? Well, a USP is supposedly something that is unique about your game. And the pillar is something that, you know, in combination with other pillars makes makes your game actually is, is used to make your game sense in the market so that your game does make sense in the market. But it doesn't necessarily have to be unique. So because if you're looking for something that is unique, then obviously you have to avoid anything that's good about other games in the past 40 years. And, and that's quite tricky to do, I think. And you can take over a lot of good things from, you should actually take over. You should not invent the wheel again, like every every time you, you, you come up with a game idea. And and I, I don't think like the point and click adventure me mechanism has to be reinvented every every time. And so, so it's unique, you know? And and that's um and that's the thing about USPs. I don't like USPs because USPs are kind of they feel forced a lot of times, and a lot of times de developers come up with USPs and then you actually poke into them, and then it turns out they are not really unique. You know, they just think it's it's a it's USP, hard. It's a pillar of their game. You know, it's extremely hard to be unique. In this, in, yeah. in this day and age. All right, so Dan, all right, let's go. Here we go. So Blast from the Discord, if you're pitching your demo, is it better to have assets that are clear that are placeholders or assets that look in the direction of what you are going for, just not oh, final? Good question. And and uh, I put a lot of thought into that too in the past 10 years. So actually, at the, to answer the question quickly, um, the worst that you can do is to come up with something in between that is not final quality, but is also not clearly placeholder, because then it's very it, it, it there is a big need to explain it, you know. And as soon as there is a big need to explain anything about your playable or your pitch deck or anything, you fail, because you you will not always be there to explain it, and people will just misjudge it and mis misevaluate it. They, they will not get it actually that it, this is not final quality so if you if you can't put final quality in in like i don't know the second level of your pitching playable then it has to be all blocky things so everybody gets it like okay so this is definitely not final quality right so this is just this is just placeholders but still even if you if you just use like untextured blocks or something like that there has to be a certain visual quality or appeal to it because otherwise people will, if it's just crap ugly, you know, people will just, you know, like start at, at a negative level of attitude. And then and in that case, rather don't show it to anybody at all, you know? Yeah, a lot of times we hear that, oh, publishers don't care what it looks like when you send it to ah, them, but it's yeah, I do. It's yes. a lie. <laughs> uh, all right, so who, who we got next, Dan? Mm -hmm. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna skip. All right, so Breakers World from YouTube says we release a new pre-alpha build every two weeks to build community interest and get more playtesters. Do you know of any platforms that are good places to communicate this and offer the build? Oh, okay. <laughs> um, I don't actually, um, because that's that's just a completely different line of business. Uh, Is it something? You may be able to do that through Patreon. Um, yeah, but Patreon the, might be good, yeah. That, well, yeah, so Jim says Reddit, but 
the mm -hmm. problem is, so if you're doing this and you're getting play testers coming in, if it's on Reddit, you don't necessarily have a way to capture that person unless, you know, you have a form that they fill out or something like that. Um, mm -hmm. But if you, I would think Patreon or maybe a newsletter of some sort, but no, I'm with you. I don't know of a fantastic place to do that, but that would be very interesting. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I mean, maybe maybe you can you could build a, a community on YouTube actually, and then present you know with on on Twitch, present it live, but actually give access to the build. Um, I don't I don't know. I mean, obviously, I'm more an expert for how to actually sell it than to a publisher, rather than you know build up a community. You know. Look at this. This is why we have an awesome community. Our community answers our questions for us. So. The answer is Patreon, or you can do Steam plus Steam News, and there are mm -hmm. other platforms like Bolt as well. So there you go. And and Breakers World says they currently use Discord, and that's a fantastic place to do it as long as, you know, on the community outreach and, and any of the marketing stuff that you have, you're actually sending, you're actually telling people to join your Discord. But then giving them the demos there, it's a great way to keep them, mm -hmm. keep them engaged. Um, so, all right. Oh, wait, new one. So Rob from the discord in terms of pitching, is it worth it as part of your log line to compare your game to other media? So let's say my game is a space Western adventure, uh, hold on, virtual novel. I had to think about that. Um, and saying it's, it's cowboy bebop. A lot of people will say, Oh, I get what you, I see what you're going for then, but I've heard it's not good to compare your game to other games. So you should. So should that rule include other media too? Uh, I will say real quick before Chris takes this over. It is absolutely wonderful to compare your games to other games, as long as you're showing how it's better slash different. But anyway, yes, Chris, go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. I I, I don't know who came up with this um, um, that you shouldn't compare your game to other games, but you actually should when you're pitching to a publisher. That is, at least you know. Because that's obviously what publishers want to know is like, did you look at the references out there? Did you look at the competition? Did you analyze the competition out there? Did, do you know your references? Do you, do you know other games? Because if you don't have a clue about that and then you come up with, I, we, we have five USPs in our game and actually you don't because you just don't know the references. That's not good, you know? So um, actually you should have a, at least one slide in your games pitch deck uh, where you compare your game to other games and you, you don't have to do it in a, a disrespectful way but but just basically say like okay so so our game is like this and these are kind of similar games where we take good things out of these games and avoid these game uh, this stuff uh, in these games and stuff like that that's actually what publishers love because it makes it easier for the evaluators at a publisher and the people in the green light meeting to do their job and find out the numbers, how much these games, the reference games have sold. You know, if you point them towards these reference games, it makes their life easier. There was a deck I saw, it had to have been like two or three years ago because it was like a live in-person pitch deck somebody gave me, somebody was showing me and they used the compare button on Steam Spy to go in and say, we're taking this game and then this game 
and it put together a nice little Venn diagram of, okay, here are the number of players that have both of these games installed on their machine. And That's so great. it's things like that, that, yeah, it makes it easier. So um, it's absolutely good to compare your game to other games. And yeah. I would say the very same for other media as well, because it's, it's still showing public interest and in, in that you understand the market. Uh, all right. So Question for oh wait see y'all are y'all are like getting all the questions in here and I'm not going to ask any anymore um which is good so Breakers World says do you find that an active community of interest is a useful data point when pitching further development absolutely it is um, and it has been for quite some time I mean there there might have been times like way back when um, you were not supposed to have publicly announced your game out um, before you pitched it to a publisher because a publisher obviously wanted to um, have the, the basically have all the control uh, over the announcement and, and what assets will be published and stuff like that. But this has changed in the last 10 years, I would say tremendously with the rise of social media. And now it's even a big plus if, if you have your original game IP um, up and coming and you already have an avid community out there, an active community um, that shows um, to a publisher like, okay, so there is some interest in this game and might actually take some of the concerns away, you know? Um, it can also backfire. I mean, if, if you if you have a Facebook page of your for your game and it's only like 10 people there, um, it might be better to have no Facebook page at all, you know? But um, but if the, if it's a it's an active community with a lot of people and they are waiting for the game and, and they're raving about the game and so it's actually a plus, you know. So we, there's a follow-on from from Discord as well because I, mm -hmm. I flipped over there. It's like how much do they? Yeah, here we go. From from Blast, you know, how much do they care about the current following? And so you touched on that with the whole, you know, if you only have ten Facebook fans maybe you don't want to do it but i mean with that in mind are there certain milestones or are there certain targets that you know developers should be trying to hit whether it's wish lists or discord members or social media followers mm, no i think there, there are no targets or something like that um a company that has um, followers like that. I mean, that that is obviously. Uh, I mean, most people out there, most players out there. Let's let's be honest. I'm not really interested in the company who's making the game, or in the publisher, or in the developer. But they're interested in the game. I mean, most of the players are. And then there's obviously a gaming community uh, where people actually care about. Okay, so who made this game, and am am I a fan? And and. Uh, I think there's only a couple of game, game companies in the world who have this kind of raving followership, right? I mean, Rockstar, for instance. Um, so I, I don't think that is really that important for a publisher, but I gotta say one aspect. I mean, if, if you are a games company and you have this amount of followers and they are following you, not your game, um, it might mean that um, that if, if you you are not likely to be integrated into a publishing family, and maybe that might be uh, tricky for a publisher for if, if they have M and A purposes, you know. 
Um, but on the other hand, it might also raise your attractiveness to them. So can be anything, you know. But I, I don't think it will it will kill your chances of getting your game signed or you know elevate them too too much. In the end, Breakers World had a follow up and said, you know, what's a useful target for wish lists? Is it a thousand or is it ten thousand? The answer is as many as you can get. Yeah, absolutely. But it's like I've never pitched a game or even in the stuff that we look like for a green light meeting. If the game looks interesting and then they're like, well, we only have a hundred wish lists. It's not the end of the world because at the no. back of our minds, when we're green lighting these things and we're looking at titles, we also realize you're a developer. Your expertise is not marketing to consumers. Or if it was, you wouldn't need a publisher. Absolutely. So, yeah. I mean, if a band only if a band is actually has a song out on Spotify and actually and, and they only have ten followers, um, it, it still might be a brilliant band doing brilliant music. It's just it's it's all about the marketing and the visibility and and how you actually manage to to create this kind of the, the wish list in the end, you know. Um, but maybe you don't even have marketing people in your in your small indie game studio, or in, and you're just not able to do it. But you're still you're brilliant game developers, you know. So for, as a publisher, I wouldn't be actually. That would, as long as the game is convincing, I wouldn't be actually turned down too much by by a small wish list or something like that. It's it's only one of many 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 indicators, and it doesn't necessarily mean that the game is uninteresting. You know, it's yeah, it, it's one of those that it's not going to hurt, but at the same time, it's not going to make or break you either. So. All right, so Lee from YouTube has got a good question, but before I would jump into it, I want to ask an intro question. When you're looking for games, where do you go to find new titles that might be interesting? Where where do you do your prospecting for new games? Um, different different sources. So obviously, obviously, we get games pitched. Um, that is the most easy thing, you know. Like we get emails, and then there's a game pitch. But rarely is it is it that somebody actually sends in something that is interesting for us because we have a very narrow focus. Um, so when I actively I, I look for both game projects, but I also look more for the developers behind it because we mostly focus and, and spend our money on our own franchises. So we are actually more interested in finding developers who would be willing and able to do work for higher projects for us. But um, speaking more generally, um, what I do is, first of all, I have a, I have an eye on the Steam front page, and then I go to the genres and stuff like that, and I look look up, okay, so what are uh, who are the guys who are doing this and stuff like that, and I Google them, I look at their pages and, and stuff like that, at their websites, and, and check out like for how long have they been around and stuff like that. So the Steam front page, then um, Steam Spy. Um, so I, I, I usually I look on Steam Spy and then I look, okay, so um, what are the, the kind of, for instance, what are simula simulation games? I look up simulation games and I look up the developers who are there and stuff like that. So Steam Spy is for me provides a little bit of a better overview um, than Steam, maybe because I'm old, I don't know, but it's, it's kind of more, it's, it's, it, the, the overview is better for me. So that's the that, that's the two things that I, I go to online. And obviously, sometimes I see something on a games news page, but that's rare. And then um, what I also do is I go to game shows 
um, like I'm going to Nordic game in about two weeks, I think, or well, three weeks. And, um, and I register in the meet to match system. And then I basically browse through the entire list of attendees. And I look up all the developers there and that might be interesting for us. And then I reach out to them for a meeting. And when somebody reaches out to me for a meeting, I, I look like, okay, could they be interesting for us? What are they doing? Now, of course, if, if the, um, if the, uh, the profile of the attendee in these, you know, meeting systems is very, very, I would say dry, and there is no information about the development, maybe just the, the name of the developer, then that's hard for me to actually gauge my interest in meeting them. So I would advise, please, please put in what you're currently working on, how many people you are, where you're located, what you're looking for and stuff like that, because that makes my life so much easier in, in figuring out whether it would be worthwhile for both of us to meet. Because it's not just you wasting my time, it's also me wasting your time if the meeting, if the meeting doesn't make any sense, you know. <laughs> So I think uh, I can tell you because I'm old too why I like Steam Spy, and that's because there's a download button. As in, you know, you can download an entire genre by into an Excel sheet, and then you can yep. flip through it that way too. It makes it very, very easy. Uh, all right. So Lee's question that I mentioned, and we've got we're coming up on our our time here. So if y'all have any additional questions for Christopher on on pitching get them in chat just as soon as possible. So is it a good or better idea to market a vertical slice demo during a Steam Next Fest to gain publisher and wish list interest? And do you have any specific recommendations to maximize each result? I would I would say it depends on on what your vertical slice looks like and and how it is, you know. So it really depends on the level of quality and the level of the polishing it um, you have reached at the time that you want to do this. Um, as soon as you go out publicly and not just behind closed doors, you show it to a publisher behind closed doors. But as soon as you go out publicly, you cannot control actually the backlash that that might cause. You know, so and and um, in in the minute that you expose yourself to the public, you will get um, feedback. And that feedback might be visible for whoever you want to sell your game to. Um, to. So um, if you go out and, and put your game on Steam and then basically there's bad comments about it or you know, or there's bad comments in the internet about your game, and people don't like it. Um, so be careful about that. Um, if, if you go public, if you expose your game to the public eye, uh, make sure that it really looks like it's supposed to look in the end and it's not like work in progress or something like that. It, because as I said, disclaimers don't work and um, like this kind of in-between quality doesn't work. Um, so, so be very careful because you might burn it also for a publisher uh, to be interested in it at that, at that point. Because if you if you show it to a publisher behind closed doors and nobody sees it, just the publishing people, um, there's no harm done yet. You know they might reject it, but you still can iterate on it and you can work on it. But as soon as it's out in public and there's negative negativity out there, <laughs> as it there always is, um, 
you might burn your project and then it becomes very, very hard to, you know, iterate on it and ride the dead horse in the end, you know. And uh, the Shram has a very good point. Wouldn't recommend it after the change of regulations for participation, since you can only take part once and it acts like a form of multiplier. If you have a lot of wish list income streams and social media, you get more. But if you have basically zero visibility, it's a wasted opportunity. Okay. So is the, you know, the, the reviews is an interesting point is mixed reviews, the kiss of death on steam. Mm, kind of, I mean, it, it depends on what I, as a publisher, um, I'm looking for, you know, so let's say there's a PC game on Steam and it has mixed reviews and I'm looking for games that we could bring to console, you know. Um, am I overly interested in a game with mixed reviews? It depends. It depends on the game and whether I see a potential that by working with the developer, we can make something that makes sense, you know, out of it. Um, um, is I think it's incredibly hard for some genres to get, you know, positive reviews um, because there's always people bitching and bickering and not meeting expectations. I, I mean, I, I know what I'm talking about because I'm working for a publisher that is doing simulation games. And you can't do simulation games right. We, we, we do them as right as we can and as right as we reasonably can. But for instance, there will always be people who say like, okay, but that button in that bus is not at the exact place where it's supposed to be or you got that traffic sign in that road you got that wrong and therefore i'm giving you a negative review i mean that's just how reality is out there um, people are always pitching so mixed reviews is not some it's, it's, it's not a cock blocker for me to, to say that you know but it's it's something where i will look okay so what is the reason and then i would start reading the reviews what are people complaining about and um, and then I will make uh, basically. Uh, I mean, I, I always try to go into t into the details and find out things. I'm an I'm an analytical guy, if you, if you will, you know. So and and mixed reviews doesn't necessarily mean that the game is bad and that the developer is bad. That's it. All right. So does results from itch have less value than the results from Steam? Example being like the numbers of demo downloads. Mm, I don't know. That's not really relevant for, for, for what I'm doing. Yeah. But I mean, it goes to the point, though. It's like there are a lot of, of, of publishers or scouts that are constantly scanning Itch.io to see where the new mm -hmm. games are. And with a lot of the feedback that we get from publishers when it's like, well, it's because you have that set of publishers. It's like it's already an early access, so we're not even going to look at it. I haven't ever had one come to me and say, you know, the game's not on Steam yet, but it is, there is a demo on Itch.io and I'm not going to, you know, we're not interested in it. So whether the answer is fair or not, E.T., I would say yes. But if you have a ridiculous number of demo downloads, then put it, you know, put it in your notes. But I don't believe, and Christopher, you correct me if I'm wrong, that a ton of scouts and, and publishers are going to itch.io every week to see what the latest game is. 
Um, I I don't, although I love uh, a lot of the stuff that that I, I see there, but it's just not interesting for us uh, at, at Astrocon specifically. Um, the thing is, in the end, um, it's 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 not really like like one of the most relevant or even relevant ingredients for for me to be interested in a game or or in a developer. In the end, it's the game, and it's the developer. You know. And, and and that's it, you know. And then obviously, if, if you have a shitload of downloads on on each IO, that can be a plus in in the overall, you know, thing. But in the end, it's all about the game and about you, you know. Can you deliver it, or or can you do it, you know? All right. So we got one follow-on comment on early release, which I think brings a good point. You know, for an early release game, it can be an opportunity to get feedback and use it for a full release. I mean, we're going back to the Steam Next Fest stuff. But for the full release, you should have mostly positive. Otherwise, it can be hard. As a side fact, an early access does not show up in the upcoming section on the front page, but a full release does. I didn't realize that. I looked at the okay. same. But yeah, that's I appreciate that feedback and, uh, and that thought. So we've got... Oh, all right. So Breakers World... You're going to be the last question, and then, but I'm going to answer this one from Discord real quick because I like the question. So, when seeing pitches, how do you feel about game pitches with some linked flexibility in budget and design? For example, being flexible in how you tell your narrative, text versus voice acting, or licensed versus licensed music, is this good, or do you prefer that the developers have already made the call and they have a more concrete budget? Oh, that's a good question. And it's also a question that I've put a lot of um, thought into and I made a lot of experiences with. Um, the, the short and very unsatisfactory answer is it really depends. <laughs> on the situation but what i what i found what i found uh, when pitching games um, there's something like you call it option fatigue and i think we all we all know it when we go into a store and there's too many options for us to buy and we just want a pair of trousers but there's too many options and then we get all confused and then we get so fatigued with it basically and then we, we go we leave the store without actually buying anything and that is kind of on a on a small level, what happens on a big level, if you if you come up to a publisher and you have too many options in your game pitch, um, because first of all, it's very hard then for the publisher to decide internally, like, okay, so what's the budget? What's the timing? What is the right thing here by um, and stuff like that to kind of, because they, they, they need to develop their own very strong opinion then about all of these options and basically kind of help in crafting a, a game uh, vision that is kind of the final thing that is, is going to be developed. And I found that it's very hard actually for publishers to do that internally um, because it might not be their own IP and it might not be their own game. So they basically take over a job of the developer and oh, they're supposed to do that and put kind of cre creative juice into it which is very hard for the publisher to do in many cases. It might not be all the cases. There might be creative people sitting in the producing or the business development of the publisher as well or in the marketing who say, yeah, that's right. We need the voiceovers and we need that and we need this. And then in the end, 
uh, we go back to the developer. That, that's how I'd love to do it, actually, you know. Uh, but I, I know from my experience in the past 10 years that not a lot of publishers actually are able to pull it off. So the better thing is to actually have your vision of the game and have it like, like this is kind of the dream vision, the ideal of your game and pitch just that, you know. And then if somebody says, it comes back to you and says like, hmm, but um, can we get a little bit of the price down because um, here and there um, it doesn't fit into our PNL, and then you can always reiterate, you know, and see if you want to scrape something off your vision or not, you know. But I'd always go out with just one actually um, pitch and one vision, one budget and, and pitch that because that's the ideal what you want to do. And I actually never had the case where somebody came back and, and said, like, yeah, we would love to sign it, but it's 50,000 or 100,000 euros too expensive. And, that, and and if you would only have given us more options, you know, for a, for a cheaper version, then we would have signed it. That never happens, actually, and it's never the case. Publishers even reject it outright because it's way too expensive for them or because they don't like it, or they sign it and then may, maybe even think about adding more money to it because they think like it's lacking uh, here and there for, and, and it's not ambitious enough. But but actually there is no kind of this, this kind of bartering like like for a couple of 10K here and 50K there, it's, it's not really happening. I, I never experienced it, you know. All right, so to answer Oregon Panda's follow-on question says, if you do make a call but don't know how to budget it, you know, how do you estimate the cost of licensed music? The reality is their variations in cost of licensed music are mm -hmm. so wide that the publisher is not going to know how to guess it either. I mean, the, your best bet is to actually contact, you know, the company involved because you may contact somebody and they're like, oh, we, we love to have our game, our song in a game and we won't charge you anything. And then you'll have others that, you know, want to charge you 10 grand. So the short answer is if you want to use that song or that band or whatever, you need to go out and, and find out how much it's going to be because it's not something that is a, a standard anywhere in the industry. Um, all right. So Cyber Jim, we will, your question about what the publisher does exactly. If you will go on this YouTube page, there are a whole wealth of videos on all of that sort of stuff, but we're wrapping down at the moment. Uh, our last question I love this. What is a cool simulator idea that you would love to see a team making? Oh, that's a good one. Um, that's a good one. Um, I, I won't tell obviously about our own ideas and everything, you know, because <laughs> that's 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 kind of our secret sauce. And, and because we are developing our own franchises, we will own the IP. So actually, when a, when a developer comes up with a great idea for a simulation game, we will always ask him, like, okay, if we invest into this. Are you willing to give up the IP because we put our money into franchises that we own? So um, that's that's the tricky thing about it. But um, but to get back to your questions, what, what is the simulator that I would I would love? Um, Community manager simulator. Oh my god! Oh yeah, that's a hard one. That's a hard one. That's a Dis that's Discord a Discord manager simulator. The oh. recipe for burnout. Yes. Yes. <laughs> No, no. I mean, 
I, I, I'd like, I, I think, I think there's a game out there. It's, it's the, it's the game making simulator, something like that. Yeah. I, I, I kind of vaguely remember. I found that very funny. You make a game, which is, which has the content game or indie developer simulator, something like that. Yeah. There's a game dev tycoon. And then I think one of the most meta ones I have ever seen was the PC simulating the PC builder simulator. Mm. Where you yeah, yeah, that, that exists. I know. Yeah. I, I want to see like Channel Five News Simulator. Right? Okay, That's there's got to be. Something. Like it's like if you want if you want your news to be more liberal or more conservative, and then they got like people out in the rain and and that kind of stuff. That's that'd be funny. And then it's like your cameras break down, and then I would no. think there has to be some sort of tycoon game like that. I I, I think. What the what the uh, the um, what what the question is all about is like what would be like the ideal game that I would like to be pitched, and I I can't tell you the exact topic or genre, but we at Astragon we're looking for to build up franchises, so it has to have something kind of a, a general appeal. If it's too niche, but we still have to spend a lot of money on it, it doesn't make any sense. So if it's like a too specific simulator, like like a a hair clipping simulator, or maybe that might be a good idea, actually. But something that is too specific, you know. Um, There's already some hair cutting simulators. You, yeah, you've got a bus seen. driving simulator. How niche do you think is too niche, Chris? Right? School bus driving simulator, right? Yeah, we are doing the bus simulator, and we can drive school mm. bus. You know, um, I, I would say the main thing to keep in mind is. You know, the simulation market isn't one where you can have five different versions of the same type of thing all be successful. So you need to find something that legitimately no one else has done before and then look at it that way. Because, you know, it's not like a strategy game. It's like you know, we can play five different medieval fantasy type strategy games and they're all different enough. But when you're like, doing a taxi cab simulator or a dump truck simulator if there's one on the market you're already putting yourself in danger so find something that nobody else has done and i yeah. guarantee you no matter how crazy or niche it is there's probably some sort of of market around it that can be built because there are some crazy ass niche mm -hmm. simulators out right there. i i like um simulators that have some kind of weird twist like the gas station simulator and then they have like aliens come down and land and yeah and just, like, <laughs> just like weird like and so it's a simulator and then all of a sudden bam all this just weird events happen <laughs> i love that that's the kind I of simulator i personally like i absolutely love the idea of the goat simulator and then there was this other game i i, I don't recall the name right now but the, you play the goose basically and you you ran around and oh uh, i remember that you had to like haul a family and get them out of your house or something yeah, along yeah. calix says the history channel show simulator oh that's oh, just going to be non-stop documentaries I, I also love in the 2000s i love to play the crash mode i think it was in the burnout game mm. the, yep. crash mode, the crash simulator where you see how many how many things you can wreck or how much damage you yes. do or whatever yeah. that was awesome you know that, i love that the crash brutal. test demi simulator or whatever it was brutal you know you you crashed into the school bus and you got extra points for that i mean how brutal mm -hmm. is that it's probably not something that we would do at Astrocom because we're all non-violent, but 
every button, no matter what simulator you make, Chris, somebody's going to try to turn it into something violent. I mean, we, we learned that with Microsoft Simulator and the you know, flight simulator in the 80s. It's like we oh, yeah. always try to fly it into the ground or a bridge or something. Or like under a bridge or something yes. crazy. You know what? I, I'm, I'm going to quest everybody in the Discord. Discord.gg slash Indie Game Business. Go into the podcast questions and type in your most ridiculous simulator idea that you could possibly think of. <laughs> I just want to see as many of them as possible. <laughs> We're going to have a brainstorming session. Green light meeting like right mm-hmm. here. Uh, Chris, thank you so much for taking time out of your day and and, and coming on and, and giving sharing your knowledge because yes, you've, you've approached this subject from multiple different angles, and we appreciate the insight. Are there any final things that you want to plug? Anything that you want to promote before we roll out of here? Mm, yeah, I mean, just be confident about what you're doing as a games developer and, you know, um, prepare well, get, you know, professional consult consulting and stuff like that, even if, especially when you start out, you know, I, I know that that probably none of you came into the games business and wanted to be like a, a business manager or something like that, or an accountant in the games company. So you, you all want to be creative guys and you want to program and you want to do game design and stuff like that. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's it, it, somebody knows how to run a company. So get help when, when you feel insecure about that. And that's, that's my advice. And, and I will say we've got our next conference coming up June 28th and 29th. Tickets are available. It's a $50 if you want to use the business, the meet the match system. So you can, you know, pitch your game to Chris. Or if you just want to watch us and hang out with the panels and all that kind of stuff, it is always free. Uh, and then also go to gamesentinel.online and that's where you can pitch your games and look for contract work for higher opportunities, all that sort of stuff from publishers and media companies around the world go sign up first three months are completely free we just launched it a few weeks ago so we are very very excited about it uh dan did i what did i miss gamesentinel.com gamesentinel.online oh sentinel.online Jobs will come rolling in. No, you didn't miss anything. Make sure and join the Discord, discord.gg slash business, And like and subscribe if you're watching on YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn, uh, Twitter, or whatever whatever else you're watching. Wherever on you Twitch, are. yeah, on Twitch, right? Twitch, you can, you can even subscribe, get a little Indie Game Business emote thing. Uh, thank you, guys. And will we be back next week? We'll let you know. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care. Thanks for listening to Indie Game Business. You can learn more about the show and our online business networking events at IndieGame.Business.